You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. My guest today is Keith Melton. Keith Melton has been a member of our board since the founding of the museum. In fact, uh, Keith was one of the uh, resources, our, our prime resources, in knowing both what we wanted to display at the museum as, as well as acquiring the uh, materials that we did, the artifacts that we have. Uh, Keith does have the largest private collection in the world of espionage artifacts, spycraft items, and uh, we at the museum have really relied on Keith through the years, uh, often with determining the nature of a new artifact or uh, whether it was worth displaying or how to display it, in fact. Uh, Keith is a historian of intelligence literature, a commentator. He has done a number of TV specials. <clears throat> he has written a number of books, perhaps one of the best known, uh, which is very popular here at the museum, is The Ultimate Spy, and another book that he has been working on with uh, Bob Wallace, the the Q, if you will, of CIA, uh, will be a book that will be coming out next May called Spycraft. Keith is joining us today for a very specific reason, and that is he is uh, doing a presentation at the museum today, this evening, on the subject of Trotsky. Trotsky figures in many people's minds as one of the people assassinated by or ordered to be assassinated by Stalin uh, in Mexico City, the, the subject of Trotsky appears in many novels and movies and references. But you find on talking to people, and I find in looking at my own memory, most of us really don't know much beyond that. And uh, Keith has devoted himself in the last uh, year or so to doing more intensive research on Trotsky and developing the Trotsky story. And that's what he's here to talk about today. 
Keith, welcome. Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure. Let me ask you, and I think this would be very helpful to our readers, who was Trotsky? Leon Trotsky was an intellectual giant of his era, and certainly, along with Lenin, the intellectual father of the Russian Revolution. And he was the founder of Pravda, the internationally known propaganda newspaper. He was the architect of the Red Army. He was the first commissar for military and naval affairs, and later the commissar for foreign affairs. He was Stalin's ultimate rival, and both could not succeed Lenin, and it was this fact that made his fate inevitable. Of course, when we speak of rival uh, here in, in the United States of the 21st century, we think of political rivals and elections and, and uh, sort of the orderly transition of government. That was not the case then, was it? Well, it it's fascinating that uh, we think in our, in our systems that ultimately intellect and fairness will triumph. Well, Stalin proved that even an intellectual giant can be toppled without, uh, if he's not aware of the ruthless nature of his opponents. And where Trotsky was smarter, Stalin was far more clever. And Stalin essentially was a minor figure during the Russian Revolution, but rose quickly to power through establishing and understanding the power of a bureaucracy. And he recognized that if he could be in the position to appoint the numerous mid-level servants that serve this burgeoning Russian revolution in the new Soviet Union, that ultimately there was power in controlling the infrastructure. And where Trotsky had once been offered to become the secretary of the Communist Party, he declined because he wanted to spend his time writing. He believed in a permanent state of revolution where Stalin realized tactically, if you, can, if you control the body of the apparatus, ultimately the mind will succumb to the body's will. And so Stalin was in the position to appoint the key individuals and people that control the infrastructure, and eventually he outmaneuvered Trotsky so that when Lenin died, ultimately, Trotsky was on vacation Lenin sent him a telegram and said, there's not time. You stay where you are on vacation. There's no need to even return to Moscow. And then ultimately used Trotsky's absence to discredit him in public opinion. The, the other hallmark of Stalin, of course, uh, at least as we know through history, recent history, is that he was ruthless. Uh, perhaps far more so than, than we can even imagine. Stalin was tactically brilliant. He was, he, he, no one ever referred to his intellect, but certainly people remember his cleverness. And he's often noted for stating that if you want to eliminate someone, don't attack the head. Eliminate all of their support apparatus so that eventually when you do take action, there's no way that they can have a reprisal against you. And he prized himself on the, on the strategic use of tack, strategic use of force, understanding when an opponent was vulnerable and when they could be eliminated. But given that, given his tactics, his understanding of, of, of bureaucracies and force and eliminating an opponent, why did he, and I, I assume that it was he, order and of course carry out 
the assassination of Trotsky. Well, he recognized very early that upon Lenin's death, there would only be room for one successor. So his maneuvering probably began as early as 1923 to outmaneuver Trotsky. Trotsky eventually, when he was discredited for not returning to Moscow for the funeral of Lenin, ultimately was sent into exile in 1928, and by 1929 was officially banned from the Communist Party, and by 1932 lost his citizenship. So beginning in 1928 in Central Asia, Stalin began his life escaping from... uh, Beginning in 1928, Trotsky began his life escaping from Stalin. And if you look at the use of murder, Trotsky ultimately feared Stalin because, number one, Trotsky knew too much. And he knew how shallow Stalin's contributions had been in truly the revolution. And he recognized that if he continued to talk about this, if he discredited Stalin, ultimately he believed his writings, this permanent revolution, could be the beginning of something called the Fourth International, which in effect the the Socialist Workers' Party that he founded in 1938. And though it was a dream to Stalin, it it was truly a threat. And beginning as early as 1933, we know in writings now in the uh, Soviet intelligence that there was early work on how they might eliminate Trotsky. Because originally he went to Central Asia, from there to an island off the Turkish coast, then into a secret exile in Norway, then to a very public resort in the south of France. Then he made in 1937 this giant leap when he appeared in Mexico City at the personal invitation of President Cardenas, which had been arranged by two very famous painters, Diego Rivera, the muralist, and his pupil and wife, Frida Kahlo. So this was a giant leap, but as Europe was on the the precipice of war, it also recognized a, a unique threat, because Trotsky was publicly attacking the Soviet Union. At the same time, the Germans posed a threat. And so Stalin feared, would there be perhaps a linkage between Trotsky and the Germans? And ultimately, his vanity required that Trotsky be eliminated. But was there, there must have been a sense on the part of Trotsky that he was um, safe in the sense that he was, he was so prominent, he was a celebrity of sorts, and he was in the company of many prominent leftists and, and in a country that was sympathetic to, to the uh, the, the left generally, and the communists in particular. So I would have thought that one of the reasons for his move to Mexico a City, where he was a public figure, really, was that uh, a sense of security. If you look back at the writings of, of Trotsky and his, his staff, they never had a night's rest that they were not fearful from the moment they left the Soviet Union. Because even though he was in exile, he saw all of those around him dying. Uh, he lost his secretaries, Rudolf Clements, Erwin Wolff were both assassinated. His son, Leon Sadoff, died under circumstances that are still felt to be an assassination in Paris. Key members of his family were dying. He was warned on multiple occasions 
by former colleagues that had themselves escaped the Soviet Union in advance of the purges, that his compound was penetrated, his entourage had GPU agents in, and that ultimately he was going to be the target of an assassination. Uh, the, the saying that he would wake up each morning and say to his wife Natalia is, one more day, we've succeeded in outliving Stalin by one more day. Keith, tell us about the assassin. Well, the assassin is a fascinating figure. His name we know now was Ramon Mercader. He was operating under a Belgian covered by the name of Jacques Monard, and he was born in 1914. He was the wife of a Catalonian Spanish family, a beautiful mother, Caradet Mercader. She him herself had been embroiled in the, the passionate politics of the left in, in Spain and France in the 1930s and had been early supporters of the Spanish Civil War. They had fought passionately against the government. And her son was first a lieutenant and then finally became a major and a political commissar. He was wounded. She was wounded. And while she was in the hospital during the war, she met a man named Leonid Eitingen. And Eitingen is a giant in the history of Soviet intelligence. And he was running Soviet intelligence operations in the Spanish Civil War. And he met and began a love affair with this beautiful Caradad Mercader while she was recovering in the hospital. And there recruited her into Russian intelligence and her son. And in 1937, both of them traveled to Moscow, where he underwent extensive sabotage and assassination training, just to be ready in case. And it was this relationship that would ultimately be in place and under his direct control, up to and including the assassination. But what's interesting and, and somewhat a, a hallmark of Russian intelligence operations was that the original recruitment was not necessarily pinpointing him as an assassin. It is my belief that he was originally merely there as a potential source to get close to Trotsky, gather intelligence, and to be there if and in case he was needed. And that's, in effect, what happened. So, in other words, you're saying the original, the original of the uh, uh, purpose of recruiting him and training him was to move him close to Trotsky, that is, uh, given his language capabilities. I mean, what, I, I take it he was not in Mexico at the time. He was trained in Moscow. He was brought to Moscow, trained, and then dispatched, but not with the idea of assassination initially. Is that what you're it, saying? Uh, the, 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 the levels of the plot extend years in advance of the assassination, and often... Perhaps in popular literature, it's seen that the assassin says, I want to, here's a target, I'll go kill him next weekend. Where in reality, professional operations such as this often take place over a period of years. And you can track the, the Trotsky assassination back to 1937 in the preparations that were done. And it started with, with the idea that, first of all, the Russian 
intelligence service, had very little knowledge about Mexico City. So after Caridad Mercader, his mother was trained in 37, she traveled to Mexico and in effect was treated, feted as a hero because she was this passionate, beautiful Spanish woman fighting for the ideals of communism and she was feted by the Mexican Communist Party and she established many contacts. When she went back, this was coincidental with the fact that Trotsky in January of 37 with his wife Natalia had moved to Mexico City and was living in the home of Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo, the Blue House. And so this early intelligence gathering was necessary. The key point was that they decided they needed a way to get Mercader close to Trotsky. And Trotsky's entourage was vigilant but not prepared. They were aware of the threats but really didn't have the internal resources to to do much about it other than just basic elementary security. So Russian intelligence under Eidington realized that to do it they needed to make an oblique approach. And how better than to do a false flag recruitment of a source close to the family? And they knew that there was a, a family in New York City, uh, an emigre, Russian emigre, by the name of Samuel Ageloff. And he had three daughters, who of which, two of which were passionate Trotskyites. One, Ruth Ageloff and her sister Sylvia. And Ruth had been a secretary for Trotsky. And in the days before modern recording and transcription equipment, Trotsky didn't handwrite things. He would speak very eloquently, and the secretary literally would copy each word down. And Ruth Ageloff had been very effective in working as a secretary. She had a sister whose name appears in the Russian files under the code name of Old Maid, and her name was Sylvia. Very plain, not unattractive, but certainly not attractive, and who had never had a passionate love affair. And they went through a, a third party by the name of Ruby Weil, and Ruby Weil was a recruited source for Russian intelligence in New York City. And Ruby befriended Sylvia. Ruby rented a, a two-room apartment, had disposable income. They began to party, spend time together, and suddenly she announced there had been a death in her family, and she had come into a large inheritance. And what better than in the summer of 1938 that the two single women should go to Paris and there they could participate in the first international conference for the Fourth International, this new founding Trotsky movement of the Socialist Workers' Party. And they did. And on June the 29th, 1938, Ruby Weil introduces the old maid, Sylvia Ageloff, to this dashing, athletic, very handsome, and single Jacques Mornard, who was Ramon Mercader under his Belgian cover. And he was a wonderful dancer, a conversationalist. He knew the best restaurants in Paris, had disposable income, and he courted her. Finally, 11 days later, the consulate, the, the residentura in Paris, had to remove Ruby because she was simply in the way of this burgeoning love affair. And he seduced her and began a very intimate and passionate love affair that essentially answered Sylvia's dreams. This is all she had ever heard, hoped for. And with that in place, 
eventually, when she returned to New York City, he followed some weeks later, using a false passport, interestingly, that had been taken from one of the dead Canadian volunteers that had fought in the Abraham Lincoln Brigade during the Spanish Civil War. But the NKVD forgers misunderstood the English, American English, and very sloppily misspelled his name. And instead of Frank Jackson, J-A-C-K-S-O-N, they spell it J-A-C-S-O-N. But he traveled to New York City under this false passport. When he's there, he said that he was going to open an import-export business in Mexico City and would soon be leaving. She said, how wonderful. My sister used to work for Trotsky. I'll go with you. I can serve the cause, and we can be together. And so it was this initial relationship that allowed the access. And in early January 1940, they arrived in Mexico City. Uh, She was serving as a secretary each day. And for the first six months, Mornard literally began to simply take her to work and pick her up each day. Let me uh, just... uh move ahead a little bit, and that is you've established how uh, Menard, or Mercador, as, as, uh, with his other name, has gotten into Trotsky's entourage. Um, as you and I are speaking um, in, in, uh, in 2007, uh, we are aware of what appear to be a number of assassinations inside Russia, today's Russia, possibly ordered by the state, not entirely clear, and of Russians abroad. But in most of these cases, uh, the, the, the assassin's hand or is, is concealed. And one of the remarkable things about the Trotsky assassination, even with this sort of um, very extensive preparation you've described, uh, was done in a very crude fashion, for heaven's sake. You can certainly describe it uh, for our listeners. But my interest would be in not only how it was done, but why it was done in such a fashion, and why the assassin's nation, the assassin's hand, uh, was made so clear. Well, interestingly, uh, the Russians, the Soviets, were very aware of this. And what is often forgotten these days is that Mercader was not the primary assassin. Their initial attack, there were two lines of attack that were conceived by Eidingen. The first was codenamed Khan. And the second was codenamed Utka, or Duck. And Khan was actually to be an organized raid on this fortified Trotsky compound that was being led and organized by Mexico's second most famous muralist, David Alfero Siqueiros. And he, taking a, a veteran of the Spanish Civil War, organized 20 other Spanish Civil War veterans. And on the night of May the 23rd, they had, unbeknownst to the public, recruited a source inside his camp. And the source had been recruited by the New York consulate. And his name was Robert Sheldon Hart, the son of a very wealthy financier on Wall Street. And he had come to Mexico City in March of 1940 to serve as a bodyguard. We now know for the first time his code name was Amur, A-M-U-R, and he was prepared to give access on a night that he had guard duty to this organized group of raiders. And early in the wee hours on the 24th, they came to the compound. 
Robert Sheldon Hart was alone on duty. He let them in. Twenty men armed with pistols, incendiary bombs, and Thompson submachine guns storm the compound. Hart takes them to the bedroom, and using three points of entry, there were two common doors leading into Trotsky's bedroom and one window, they fired more than 300 rounds into the bedroom and the bed, and they miss. Because... They were operating under the delusion that the bedroom was booby-trapped, as if someone would booby-trap their bedroom and not have to go in the middle of the night to the lavatory. But they never went in. And because of the arcs of fire from the three points of entry into the room, Trotsky simply crawled into the corner. His wife, Natalia, threw herself on top of them, and neither of them suffered an injury. Only the grandson was Siva, was actually had a small injury. And they literally, the last man, the last assassin came around and fired another six bullets into the bed, thinking they're under the bed. And they left, and they took heart with them. And this was a bombshell in Mexico. But it was a complete and utter failure. Eitingen, General Eitingen, a codename Tom, we have his original message that he sent back to Stalin, in effect saying, I have suffered a horrible embarrassment. I'm ready to be recalled and suffer any punishment that you think is appropriate. But rather than being angry, Stalin saw that the, their political operation was so effective that they pointed the fact that this wasn't a real attack. Trotsky had actually staged it himself to get sympathy from the Mexican people because clearly, unless he was prepared, how could you fire 300 bullets into a room and not kill someone? So the Mexican police accused Trotsky of not even being in the room. And rather than being a disaster, it turned out to be a public relations success. Four days after the attack, Mercader who had only been an ancillary role. He had dropped Sylvia Ageloff at the compound and picked her up each day, slowly ingratiating himself with familiarity with the guards. He volunteered. He and, her mo- he and his mother went to New York City in June, late June of 1940, and it was there. The final plan was set, and they began literally what was probably the last seven weeks of Trotsky's life. I, I know we're we're pushing the envelope, and and but I I think we've we've got to we've got to bring this story to uh, to uh, the ending that everyone's familiar with, with your comments on it, um, and that's that's where I would ask you to if we could go now to to the actual assassination of Trotsky and anything relating to that in the aftermath. Uh, at approximately five twenty in the afternoon, on. M- August the 20th, 1940. Mercader appears at the compound purportedly to meet his common-law wife, Sylvia, and they wanted to have a final toast to say farewell to Trotsky because they were leaving for New York City. Sylvia Ageloff knows nothing about this. It's the assassin. He had done a dry run one week before, and under the guise of coming there with an article for Trotsky to review, he knew that the guards had allowed he and Trotsky in his office alone. Now, it's hot, it's warm, but he's carrying a heavy raincoat and wearing a hat. And Natalia notices this and says, would you like some water? You don't look well. He says, well, yes, thank you. He follows Trotsky into his study. Trotsky sits at the desk. Mercader places his raincoat on a credenza behind the desk. 
and from it he pulls a small pialette or small ice climbing axe that had been shortened. Now Mercader was an experienced ice climber and he knew he had unique talents for handling this ice axe and had once boasted that he could virtually break a block of granite if he could have the proper strike with this axe. And it was shortened to about one foot long. He had it suspended within his raincoat with a small piece of cord. Now, interestingly, this wasn't his only weapon. He had a dagger, approximately 13 inches long, and a star pistol in case. But his plan was to kill Trotsky quietly and outside waiting in two cars, his mother and a chauffeur were in one car, and Eidington was in another car. They had an escape route. As Trotsky sat down, the assassin comes up behind him with the Alpenstück, and it, just as he's prepared for the blow, Trotsky startles and looks up slightly to the right, and at that point, it hit him. The lesion is approximately three-quarters of an inch wide, two and three-quarters of an inch deep. But amazingly, Trotsky doesn't die. He lets out this pathetic, dying scream and then attacks the assassin, bites him deeply in the hand. The bodyguards come in, subdue Mercader, but Trotsky's mortally wounded. He goes to the hospital. He dies some 26 hours later. But Mornard never, ever admits who he is. In fact, he says, I'm a Trotskyite, but Trotsky wants me to, to assassinate Stalin, and I refuse to do that. I'll eliminate him instead. And he sticks with the story for the next 19 years and eight months of his sentence. And though at, at the time we can say it was sloppy, and there were some elements of it clearly that were unprofessional, the, the Utka line run by Eidingen and Karadad was far more professional than the first attack conned by Sikeros. And if you say, if you judge the operation by its ultimate success, though it was the crime of the century, Stalin had muddied the waters enough that they were just unsure. Number one, they didn't know who Mornard was. They were unsure of his political affiliation. And by the time they figured it out 10 years later, no one really cared. And, and Mercador, uh, after serving his sentence, at least 19 or so years of it, returned to Moscow where he was honored for his work. Is that right? He was feted as a hero of the Soviet Union and presented a solid gold watch under his operational name, Agent Lopez. And I'm very proud uh, that tonight here at the museum, we're going to be putting this on public display for the very first time, as well as a oil painting done by his mother, Karadad, who, under the code name Mother, certainly challenges the traditional relationships of a mother who's proud of her son. Keith, this has been a fascinating story, and I think all the richer for the original research that you've done into it. And I really would like to invite you back to talk about one of your specialties, which is within the history of intelligence, the role of gadgetry and, and espionage, so many of the artifacts that you've managed to acquiring your collection. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you.